Well, last Sunday evening, we began the second half of this letter. Last Sunday evening, we began our study in the second half of Ephesians 4 through 6. You'll remember that is the main turning point within the letter. After three chapters of rich, dense theological truths, Paul then begins to exhort and to encourage. He wants us very much to keep the theology of the first three chapters in mind, in view, and especially the prayer that closes chapter three. And from there, he springboards into these exhortations. He doesn't leave theology behind him. There is much theology still to come in these three chapters. But his emphasis now is to instruct, to instruct the Christians in light of all that is true of them in Christ Jesus. And you'll remember his primary exhortation last week that we considered was that the believers would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they had been called. It is his exhortation to us also that we would live our lives in a manner that befits the magnitude of the calling we've received. What does that look like? Paul explained it means that each of us should be striving for humility, gentleness, and patience. These are characteristics that should define every Christian. And then in the life of the believing community, they are worked out how by bearing with one another in love, striving eagerly to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Every single Bible-believing, gospel-affirming, Christ-exalting church is a community of blood-bought sinners who ought to be striving towards these ends. From there, verses 4 through 6, Paul then unpacks exactly what is the nature of our unity. Notice at the end of verse 3, he uses this phrase, bond of peace. We ought to be striving eagerly to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Last Sunday evening, I purposefully didn't spend too much time on that phrase, in part because I knew that this Sunday evening it would be the focus of our attention. Paul, as it were, unpacks exactly what is that bond of peace in verses 4 through 6. You'll notice as I read the scripture, there was lots of occurrences of that word one. In fact, seven times here, Paul draws attention to the notion of oneness, of unity, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Undoubtedly, that is an emphasis as he explains the bond of peace, but understand this is not a random or haphazard list. Rather, these ones are anchored in the three persons of the Trinity. 
How do we understand this list? They are anchored in the three persons of the Trinity. So he talks about one Spirit, one Lord, and one God and Father. And all of the other characteristics that he mentions hang off of those three people. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perhaps the most important thing for you to understand then about the bond of peace is that it is not intended to be an ideal towards which we strive. Rather, it is a datum which is real, which is true, and should affect the way we think of one another. I'll say that again, it is perhaps the most important thing we need to understand. As Paul picks up on this phrase, bond of peace, opens it up for us and shows exactly what is that nature. The bond of peace is not an ideal towards which we ought to be striving. It's a datum, which is true. And our job is to take it in, to understand it, by God's grace to grasp it, so as to inform the way in which we think of one another. When you came in this evening, perhaps you shook hands with a few folks. Perhaps you gave someone a hug. What you didn't see is that there is a bond between you and every other person in this room who is in Christ. And that bond is real and it is true. It is not something that you strive towards. It is something that God has set in place and we are to apprehend it so as to increase our love and affection for one another. So let's work through the three persons of the Trinity so as to more fully understand the nature of the bond of peace. Beginning with the Spirit, what exactly is that bond of peace? It is a common indwelling of the Holy Spirit which orients our hearts towards heaven. If you picture this rope between us and every other believer, Paul is opening it up. He's prizing open that thick cord, the bond of peace, and showing us what are the constituent parts. And the first thread that he draws our attention to is the common indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which orients our hearts towards heaven. He says in verse 4, there is one body. One body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. Now Paul has used the metaphor of the body before within this letter. Back in chapter 2, verse 16, he instructed us, he taught us that we are one body. There, pointing out that we are one body by virtue of our common head, that is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the head of the church, and by virtue of his headship, we are one 
body. However, here, the accent, the emphasis is slightly different. The same truth, we are one body, but here, by virtue of our common indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Every single person that places their faith in Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit. Every single Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them without exception. The Spirit is not something that we work for. It's not something that we earn. It is not that some Christians have believed savingly in Christ and yet have not received the Spirit. Everyone whose sins are forgiven in Christ has the gift of the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, Paul can say we are one body. Notice it is the same Spirit. One body, one Spirit. It is not a different spirit that indwells your neighbor who is in Christ than the one that indwells you. It is not a different spirit that indwells the Christian, the believer, whose Christianity looks different to yours. They believe the same foundational doctrines. They have grasped hold of the gospel savingly. Their affections have been set on Christ and they've turned away from their sin. Their outworking of their Christian faith may look very different to yours. The spirit that indwells them is exactly the same spirit. And this spirit that is common to every Christian is operating inside of us in the same manner Which is to say, the Holy Spirit orients the Christian's heart towards glory. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. When the Holy Spirit indwells a believer, he begins to orient his heart towards the hope, the glory that is ours in Christ. Without exception, if you are a Christian, at least one thing we could say that is true of you is that there is an impulse in your heart that desires glory, desires Christ, desires your final, ultimate salvation with Him. This is how the Spirit works in every single believer. Now, why is it important for us to be mindful of this unity, this aspect of the bond of peace. Why is it important for us to apprehend it? Last week, I spoke very briefly about the reality of conflict within the local church. We're redeemed, but we are sinners. And so in every local church, there is tension, conflict from Time to time, believers don't always see things the same. They don't always see eye to eye. I find it helpful to think through issues of disagreement according to three categories. You'll hear me speak about these often. There are disagreements that are of a theological nature. They're serious. 
We disagree about what is true and what is not true. Sometimes they may even be centered on the gospel itself. Disagreements that are theological in nature. There are other disagreements that fall within the sphere of what I call philosophy of ministry issues. Not a disagreement about what is true and what is not true, what the Bible says and does not say, but more how we apply these truths. How do we faithfully outwork our ministry in the life of the local church? That's a philosophy of ministry issue. And then there are those disagreements that are neither theological nor pertaining to philosophy of ministry, but are simply preference issues. And there is a spectrum. These spheres fall onto a spectrum, undoubtedly. But, in reality, sadly, all too often, the disagreements that bring about disunity are merely preference issues. We do well to think of this spectrum, but more to the point, to think of the bond of peace that draws us together so that we would have a right perspective when we disagree. It is so crucial that we have a proper perspective as to the nature and the importance of our disagreement in light of the bond of peace that unites us. I was reminded just earlier this week of a story that perhaps highlights or illustrates the point. On September 10th in 1939, Just a few days into the Second World War, a British submarine, HMS Triton, detected another vessel in its near vicinity. The submarine issued some challenges to this other vessel. Challenges asking that the vessel would identify itself. And there was no response. And so... Understanding that the other vessel was a German U-boat, fired two torpedoes and sank that submarine. And of course, a few days later, it emerged that it was actually another British submarine. 52 men killed as HMS Oxley went down. If they had known that this other vessel was on the same team, they would not have fired those torpedoes. If we would remind ourselves that we are on the same team, we wouldn't fire the shots. The shots that so often get fired when there are disagreements pertaining to preferences. If we would call to mind the bond of peace that is real and true and exists between every single person who is in Christ by virtue of the common indwelling of the Holy Spirit that orients our hearts towards glory, we would better bear with one another in love and strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That's just one of the chords of the bond of peace. Paul is opening up this thick rope, as it were. One cord is anchored in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. There is another cord that he moves on to that is anchored in 
the person of the Lord Jesus. Specifically, our common experience of Christ who centers our lives on Him. Paul says in verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Our common experience of Christ that centers our lives on Him. Now what do I mean by that? First of all, Paul very simply states that every single Christian has the same Lord, Jesus of Nazareth. Every single Christian, irrespective of the flavor of Christianity that they may practice, their worship style may be different, their liturgy may be different, the way in which they go about their devotional life may not look exactly like you, Every single Christian has the same Lord, namely Jesus Christ. And not only is it true that every Christian has the same Lord, every Christian has the same experience of Him, by which I mean every single Christian has a testimony wherein they came at some point in their life to recognize the worth of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, and therefore turned away from their sins and put their faith in Him. Every single Christian has that same experience. As Paul refers here to one faith, he is bringing into view the mechanism that God has ordained by which we are saved, that is, a taking in of Christ a turning away from sin, and a profession that He is indeed our Lord and Savior. That is the one faith that unites us. And then He says, one baptism. Now here, I do not think Paul is speaking about the physical baptism that Christians undergo as they go down into the water and back up. There's nothing in the context that seems that he's bringing that ordinance of the church into view. Nor do I think Paul is referencing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Which is true, but if that was what he had in mind, he would label baptism under the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit in verse 4. Most likely what Paul is referencing as he writes one Baptism is the metaphor to which he refers to elsewhere in his epistles, whereby every single Christian has died in the likeness of Christ and been risen in the likeness of his new life. Elsewhere in his epistles, Paul talks about baptism in a more metaphorical sense, saying You have died a death with Christ and you have been risen in newness of life with Him. And indeed, the water baptism that we undergo is intended to represent that reality. As the believer goes down into the water, they are symbolizing the death of the old self. As they come up from the water, the reality of newness of life in Christ. It is that baptism to which Paul refers here, indicating 
What unites all of us is our common experience of Jesus as Lord reigning over our life and continually directing us away from the old self into the new. Every single Christian, having placed their faith in Christ, has a common experience that Christ will sanctify you. Christ is not content to let you be, but he will be Lord over your life daily, instructing you in the way of holiness, convicting you concerning your sin. There is a life reorientation in so much as he is found to be Lord. And that is our common experience of Christ that centers our lives on him. One of the privileges that I have as a pastor, is to hear often testimonies of salvation. I hear testimonies often as we do interviews for those coming into membership in the church. When we interview anyone who is interviewing or applying for a position at the school, they have an interview with me, part of which I ask for their testimony of salvation. And apart from that, it's just one of my favorite questions to ask anyone. Tell me how the Lord saved you and what he is doing in your life now. And the reality that I marvel at time and time again is that every testimony is the same. And I don't say that to diminish your experience of Christ. I don't say that to belittle the particular circumstances through which the Lord saved you, but I say it to draw attention to our unity in Him. Every single Christian has come to a point where they acknowledge the Lordship of Christ, His sufficiency on the cross to make a payment for sin. Every single Christian has turned away from their sin, disowned their sin, and cast themselves upon the Lord Jesus, and every single Christian knows the experience of Him reigning over their lives to lead them from one degree of glory to the next. Every testimony is wonderfully the same. Why? Is this important to remember? It affects the way we think of one another. I think back on a difficult period in my ministry. I was criticized for some things that I'd said. Some things that I had preached. I examined myself. I examined the things I'd said. I believed that they were true and I hadn't misrepresented God or the Lord Jesus or the text. Certainly I could have been clearer. But I didn't think I'd made a mistake. And yet there were some brothers that were particularly animated. And they had taken their criticisms not to me, but to others. And that had a knock-on effect. It had implications for my ministry. And it was a short but difficult season. And one of the most helpful thoughts for me to think upon 
is that these men love Christ. They love Christ. We don't see eye to eye. And they don't understand why they're pursuing this complaint in the way in which they are, but they love the Lord Jesus. Their sins are forgiven. They have the same faith that I do. And the same baptism. And so through this, I can love them. And I would encourage you not even to wait. Don't wait until perhaps an issue of disagreement arises between you and another brother or sister in Christ. Don't wait to call these realities to mind. Do it in times of peace. Regularly call to mind the reality that those who are around you in the Christian life share the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism. Bring your brothers and sisters before the Lord in prayer daily. Not to say that you have an issue, you're at peace with them and times are good. In those times in a proactive manner so as to strengthen the unity that already exists between you. Bring them before the Lord in prayer and praise God that they have the same Lord and the same faith and the same baptism. Give thanks this evening for those around you with whom, between whom, there is this bond of peace that is a datum. It's a reality that God has established. Give thanks for it. And pray that acknowledging that bond of peace, you would better love one another. There is one last chord to the bond of peace. Paul is opening up this rope. There is the ministry of the Holy Spirit the ministry of the Lord Jesus, and finally the ministry of God the Father, all working together to form the bond of peace that is a datum between us, a reality, not an ideal to which we ought to be striving. And Paul says in verse 6, speaking about the ministry of the Father, we have one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Now, as Paul draws attention to this ministry, the ministry of a sovereign God who reigns over all aspects of our lives, more than that is working in every aspect of our lives, working in each of us, through each of us, according to his perfect wisdom, I don't think this is new information for the Christians in Ephesus. Think about how Paul began the letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he goes on often to speak about the, the Father's sovereign reign over us. This is not new information for the Christians. And yet Paul still finds it important to iterate, to lay out for them why 
because we can so often behave as if it were not true. In particular, I think, as we look at one another and we acknowledge that each and every one of us is a work in progress, none of us are where we ought to be. As we look at one another and we see so readily sins in other people's lives, we can be tempted to think, even on a subconscious level, that the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is perhaps not so at work in His life. Perhaps He's not so at work according to His sovereign grace in her life. I see what the Lord has done in me. I don't see that same work of grace in them. There's so much work to do there. Perhaps they are not, to the same degree, a recipient of God's sovereign grace. And of course, verse 6 teaches us nothing could be further from the truth. God, in His perfect wisdom, saves each of us at the proper time. God, in His perfect wisdom, allows each of us to have the unique experiences in a fallen, broken world that we have had prior to coming to salvation. We all bear the marks of sin in different ways. And so we do see in one another all too readily that we are indeed a work in progress. Not one of us is where we ought to be. But that does not in any way diminish God's sovereign work over us, through us, and in us. Affirm in your heart this evening as you look around you that God is just as active in their lives as He is in yours. Affirm in your heart this evening as you look around you, though we are not where we would like to be, that does not diminish the sovereign reign of God the Father over all of us and through all of us and in all of us. This is the work of the Father in our lives and it is common to every single Christian. Now there is another way in which we might be tempted to diminish the unity that the work of the Father brings and that is not so much as we look around us and see different amounts of progress in our sanctification, but as we look around us and we see a different level of giftedness. I say that because just around the corner, next week's text focuses on the way in which God has wired us differently. He gives to each different gifts. Paul has labored so much of this letter to speak about our unity in Christ, and now he starts to speak about our differences. He has equipped each of us differently. We are not all intended to serve the body in exactly the same manner. Praise God. As we serve differently, Never belittle in your mind, with your words, in your heart, the gifting that God has given to another brother or sister in Christ. 
Don't allow that difference in gifting to translate in your mind to a difference in the way in which God is working in their life. Just because they don't serve in the same way that you do. They may not be as capable in one area as you are, but they certainly are in other areas. The working of God the Father is the same in all of us. Insomuch as He sent His Son to die for you, He is committed for every single child of His to be reigning over their lives according to His sovereign purposes, both over and through and in. And we do well to acknowledge this Unity. And so the bond of peace is threefold. It is a unity brought about by the ministry of the Spirit. It's a unity that's brought about by the ministry of Christ, the Son. And it is a unity that is brought about by the ministry of God, our Father. This is not an ideal It's not a nice idea that Paul had one day. It is not something that we should be striving towards to cause to be a reality. It is a reality. We are bound together by this bond of peace. And our responsibility is to acknowledge it. To savor it. To rehearse it in our fellowship, in our prayers, and in our songs so that we would better love one another. Would you pray with me now to close? Father, we give you thanks for the bond of peace that unites us. It is a reality brought about by our common salvation. It's not a standard that we're striving for, It's true right now this evening in this room. There is a bond between every single person who is in Christ. An unbreakable bond of peace. The bond is threefold. The ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of the Son, the ministry of the Father. And it is glorious. Father, teach our hearts concerning this bond. Would you cause us to marvel at the work of the gospel that brings us together? As I've said so many times, if it were not for the gospel, There would be no reason for us to share our lives with one another. If it were not for the gospel, we would have no reason to be here this evening. Striving to labor with one another in love. And yet, the gospel changes everything. The cross of the Lord Jesus changes everything. Sins forgiven. Righteousness bestowed and a bond of peace between us. Help us to take in this bond of peace and may it 
prompt us to love one another all the more until Christ returns. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen.